Hi, and welcome to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. In this episode, I welcome Dr. Brad Miller, a licensed clinical psychologist and co-founder of Soccer Resilience. He has spent over 20 years helping youth and adult athletes grow their ability to control their performance anxiety and stress, to persevere and improve their overall sports performance. Brad played soccer at Wake Forest University and shares how his experience with performance anxiety led to him pursuing his profession and desire to help others. There's a lot to learn from Dr. Merlet from building mental resilience, importance of deep belly breathing as a tool for regulating emotions and staying focused. I hope you enjoy. If you're enjoying the podcast and find it valuable, please consider visiting buymeacoffee.com matchplay. These small donations collectively help offset costs and other expenses associated with production of the podcast, so I can continue to offer this service for free. Please take an extra minute to rate and review the podcast where you listen. This is a huge help. Share the podcast with whomever you think would be interested and will help in their process. Check us out on social media as well. The links can be found at matchplayrecruit.com. Yeah, it's oh, in I the thought work. you did. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, we may have to talk about that. Maybe uh, okay. you start one. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah. So tell us about your, uh, how all this came to be. Yeah. So, um, you know, like many of your listeners, uh, soccer has been, you know, my passion for a long, long time. Um, you know, I liked a lot of different sports growing up, but, you know, soccer was the one that really, uh, stood out to me. Um, I just love the physicality of it. I've always been a defender. Um, and so I, I, I was a traditional sweeper back in the eighties when it really was a traditional sweeper. Um, and it was perfect for me. I just loved, you know, to kind of like protect the goal. That was always important to me, help my team. And so trying to keep them from scoring, kind of love that responsibility. And, you know, soccer was kind of like my therapy as a kid. I just really loved it as a place. I just had a lot of fun, loved to compete. Uh, I was fortunate as a youth player, I had a lot of the same players on my team throughout uh, my youth. Um, and that was a really nice thing to have. And, um, you know, when uh, I was in high school, uh, you had thoughts of like, I'd love to go play college soccer. It'd be great. Um, I didn't really know if that would ever come and happen for me. Uh, I was a local kid in Winston-Salem, which happened to be where Wake Forest is. And I got recruited to go play at Wake Forest, which uh, was a total dream come true for me. Um, never really thought that would be in the cards for a program like that, um, you know, top, you know, program. Um, and it was great. And so I was a 6'3 defender and they looked at me and said, you know, you could do a lot of things to help. You can step in defensively even early, uh, but you are really a liability um, with your technical skills. And I'd avoided my technical skills growing up. I went to ODP when I was 10, tried out in the first, you know, it was like an hour and a half format, first 45 minutes of technical drills. I was a kid dribbling over cones at 10. I'm like, oh my gosh, dude, you have two left feet. Like, it's so embarrassing. And then the scrimmage came and I really did well and they didn't accept me, which I knew was going to happen the first five minutes. And instead of working on that and saying, hey, Brad, let's grow your game, I made the choice to really kind of avoid it. And playing sweeper made me able to do that. I shot away a lot from working on my technical game um, and that it, it, it worked well enough for me as a youth player. I got to college and we had 25 players as a freshman. I literally was 24th or 25th in technical skills. And so that's when it kind of came to be uh, that something had to change. And so I did. I worked really, really hard. I grinded up the ladder um, every year. My last year got big starts, big games. Um, fortunate enough that we won an ACC championship. Some really, really great experiences. Um, but what I really struggle with and really where soccer resilience came from is uh, what I went through in college. I had performance anxiety almost from the get go. 
and it affected me my entire college career. I never really had it as a youth player. I mean, I would get nervous at times, but I never felt like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, like self-doubt just overwhelming me to where it would affect my confidence, performance, and joy. And that was really my time at Wake. Um, I thought I was weak and soft and I couldn't tell anybody because of course nobody else was going through performance anxiety for me. So I kind of felt on this island and, you know, obviously, you know, and I know now, and even over the years I've talked to people and they were like, what you did? I, I mean, you look kind of calm out there. I mean, you yeah. know, and, and so on the outside, I look kind of okay. On the inside, I was not. Um, and I struggled a lot with it. Uh, probably my best mental strength was to persevere and I could just push through it. But at some point it didn't work and self-doubt would hijack me at the worst times. It really did. And so when I graduated, I, I just kind of felt like disappointed in myself, like, Brad, you just never pulled it together. You had so much to have played more. Um, the MLS wasn't around, but I don't think I would have been good to play in MLS at that point because I'd neglected my technical, but I definitely could have had more contributions. And um, but but I uh, just couldn't find a way with it. Performance anxiety. And so I felt bad and defective for a lot of years, actually a long time, but it really became my passion to work with athletes, which I've been doing for over 20 years as a clinical psychologist. Um, and, and that's what my passion is, is because I don't want them to have to suffer in silence like I did. And I love every time talk to athletes and talk about how the brain's wired to go negative and why we struggle with performance anxiety and almost all of them just nod and go, yeah, yeah. I mean, whatever level it is, right. Whoever that pro college youth player is, they all just know it's not and go, yep, I know exactly what that's like. Um, and so it's so rewarding to give them tools and strategies where they can now shift that and change that. That's really where soccer's dance was born. Um, I've been doing individual work, you know, for 15, uh, you know, 16 years and I loved it, but I wanted to reach more people. I thought about me and there's like, there's teams and there's other players and what if we could find a way? So I started locally in San Diego for about two and a half years. And that was fun working with some, some club teams here. And then uh, COVID came and no more being in person and did online. And through that process, I uh, reached out to um, a guy, Wells Thompson, actually played way from Winston-Salem, ironically, lived three miles apart, never really met. I knew who he was because he, you know, was a top five draft pick, a uh, big time player at Wake, uh, had a very, you know, good uh, uh, MLS career. And he said, in retirement, it's kind of hard. And I linked it. I just said, hey, you know, that's great. You you share kind of things because I can use that with the athletes I work for. It makes such a difference. And we just started talking in conversation. And we have a lot of liked interests. He's been coaching kids, working with kids in a lot of camps, different things. And we kind of said, what if we actually combined together? And we kind of took this time during the pandemic and really tried to reach more people and make a bigger impact. And we both were pumped and excited to do it. And that was about three and a half years ago. And it's just grown. Uh, we have a great team, um, a lot of pro ambassadors who joined us. Uh, just incredibly fortunate to have so many like-minded people who sincerely want to help and give back uh, youth college and pro athletes. Really, our heart is probably the youth um, and college athletes. We work a little bit with pros, but it's more kind of youth and college players um, and want to just equip them to manage life and have that resilience to give them that performance and joy on the field, but also off the field. And so we can kind of do that together in one shot, um, make the world a better place. And that's that's what we're really looking to do. Very cool. Um, that's a great, great mission. Um, I know you guys are doing great work. Um, go back though. Uh, let's define performance anxiety and then what maybe you wish you knew then that you know now, you know, where, where, you know, Dr. Miller helping out young Brad, Brad Miller back then, you know, 
Um, oh my gosh, I've given myself so many <laughs> therapy sessions. My you know eighteen year old self, and nineteen year old self, and twenty year old self, and and honestly, you know, for people listening, and I'm sure they do this too, right? You learn things along the way, and you go back to those moments and go, oh my gosh, why didn't I have this knowledge? Why couldn't I do it? And one of the gifts, honestly, that Soccer Resilience has given me, it's really helped me reframe that from, oh my gosh, you couldn't pull it together. You left so much on the table to, if that never happened to me, I would not be talking to you. I would not be reaching all these people, having this incredible team we have at Soccer Resilience. So um, that's just a side note that for all of us, and, and again, it's not that we have to say that hard things like, I'm so glad it happened. It's the best thing to happen. I mean, you can think that. You can also think, no, I'd like to change. I'd like to go back and never have it. But since we can't change what's happened, it really does give us an opportunity with soccer as well. Like, well, players will be stuck in something happened like a year and a half ago. And that defines them today. And we'll say, you know, why did that happen? What can you learn from that? And let's take a look at how you've grown from that. Yeah, there's a lot of hard things from it, but let's learn how you've grown from that. And what can you do today, right? Why are you now more committed to certain parts of your game than before because of that experience? So that's just something to on a kind of side tangent. But um, what I would tell myself is I, I didn't know about the brain. I had no idea how the brain was wired, how it worked, why I struggle with performance anxiety. I just thought it was a character defect. So what I would tell myself is and we tell the players and say, and, and, and Scott, I'll ask you too, that our brain is wired for safety. It's not wired for success. Our brain is wired to overly focus on the negative in the present, in the future, in the past because that's how it kept us alive when there were saber-toothed tigers, right? That was the only chance of survival we had. And so today, obviously no saber-toothed tigers, but our brain's wired the same way. So, um, so I don't know if you and I talked about this before, but if you can maybe pause for a second and ask the question so your listeners can, but what percent of our daily thoughts are negative? So we know the brain's wired for safety, not for success, overly negative, but what percent of our daily thoughts are negative? Average person, average day. Hmm. Um. <clears throat> I'm going to guess it's a surprising, surprisingly high amount. Um, so, uh, I mean, 75%, 60 You are really close. You're really close. It's 80%. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah, 80%. So what that means is we are hardwired, factory installed. You, me, Messi, Ronaldo, uh, Ronaldo Carly Lloyd, you know, um, everybody, we are all wired to overly focus on the negative with a ratio of four to one. So we are hardwired to have four negative thoughts to every one positive thought. So what I wish I knew was someone going, Brad, your brain is going to hijack you. And especially things that matter to you, big games, big moments, you're going to be hit with a lot of anxiety, not because you're actually going to play poorly, not because this is your looking into the future, the curtains pull back, it's going to be a disaster. It's because my brain wants me to avoid. That's the brain's number one solution back in Saber Two Tiger days, right? We're in the cave, we're starving to death, we're weak, we're hungry, we're irritable. We're like, we need food. Where well, the brain's like, yeah, but you could die. Yeah, good point, brain, you got that. And so it would make us feel so uncomfortable. We wouldn't leave the cave until we literally got to the point where we probably were going to die. So the number one solution for the brain is to avoid because that keeps us safe from physical danger, but also emotional danger. By emotional danger, I mean anything that might feel that's unpleasant, embarrassment, shame guilt, you know, inadequacy, all those things we could feel in anything we do, the brain's like, no, 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 don't do it. Then you want to feel bad and you're going to be okay. So I wish I knew that. So I would go, oh, that's why I get hijacked so much. That's why it feels like I'm going to play horrible. That's why all my brain is focusing on or mostly is all the mistakes I'm going to make instead of what could go well. Right. right. So 
what I wish I knew and what we tell athletes today is that that's why the night before a game, you get the butterflies, it's hard to sleep because your brain's going to forecast four ways you're going to play poorly to every one reason you're going to play well. It's why during leading up to the game, it might be hard to eat a pregame meal. I actually worked with a, a, a team, uh, I think it's Oklahoma ODP, and a parent said, so how do I help my son or daughter when they aren't able to eat the pregame meal because they're too nervous? Hmm. Right. Because that's what anxiety does to us. And so, you know, helping them understand that this is what the brain's trying to do to talk you out about putting negative thoughts in your head, more for negative to every one positive thought. And then during a game, right, we concede a goal early. We're down early. Why do some teams like shut down and like kind of disengage and not really continue to go after it? Because their brain goes, yep, see, I knew we we're going to lose today. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. And here we go. And there's here's four reasons why we're going to be disappointed. We're going to stop working hard. We're going to get another goal in about 10 minutes. And the day's done. We drove out here. Day's over. Season's going to stink. Great job. This season's done. That's right. what our brain wired to put in our head. Every one reason, like, you know what? We got like 85 minutes left. There's a pretty good shot. We're going to get some chances. And I bet you can get an equalizer. We might even get a couple, two or three. Way more time to go. Let's refocus. Keep the game plan and go after it, right? That's where we want to go. And so the battle is between our emotional brain and our thinking brain. Thinking brain is based on facts. Emotional brain is based on feelings. So when it feels like I'm going to play poorly, it's so convincing. I think I am. So now I play hesitant. I don't call for the ball. I don't make runs. I don't take my shots. I don't go in strong on tackles because my brain's already convinced me that I'm going to play horribly bad and try to minimize the damage by just not being involved too much. Right? That's the emotional brain. Feelings are facts. My thinking brain goes, well, you could play horrible. You could play poorly, but you've been putting a lot of hard work in and you can contribute to your team. So let's focus on the things we know that are important for us to do to perform better. And that's what we're going to do. Support your team, stay engaged, keep working. Even when you make mistakes, you're going to make mistakes, Brad. And now you can kind of keep going. So right. knowing how the brain works would be huge because you've got to learn where self-doubt comes from, how it's not necessarily accurate. And right. then we want to steer our mind towards the facts. And so having the ability to manage your emotion, to regulate your emotions, which I wish I knew, um, right. those would be big things. I'll, I'll just give you a quick example. Um, so my last year, right? So I grinded five years. I had mono my junior year. So I had a red shirt year. So at my fifth year, right? In college soccer, the grind, the grind, the grind, right? Just trying to get more playing time, right? Trying to get on the field, not knowing if I was going to get rewarded for it or not. So my fifth year, I finally get some consecutive starts. True story. It's 21st birthday and we're playing South Carolina and I already started two games, had two big games. It was going kind of better and better. I'm like, oh my gosh, on my 21st birthday, I'm actually going to be starting. We're playing South Carolina. They rank like top 10, big, big game. And I'm like, okay, I was so nervous. And I played the best game of my, whoops, sorry, this thing came out here from the microphone. Apologize to your viewers. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. Um, <laughs> So, so 21st birthday, and I was so nervous it wasn't going to go well. Played the best game of my life. It was the only time in college, Scott, I truly felt free. I mm -hmm. was like in that place. It took me five years to feel like that in college, and I, I just did. I mean, I was loving I was going after it. I was like, you know, spinning off my guy, shutting down someone else. I mean, I was just feeling it, right? I walk yeah. off the field. I'm just like, yes. I'm like, this is awesome. My 21st birthday, man, all the things I've been through, all the setbacks, all the doubt. Yes, yes, yes. Here we go. I finally kicked, you know, performance anxieties, but it's done. It's all good. Well, you probably know where this story is going to lead because the fourth day, our fourth start, we're playing Maryland a couple days later, and I can feel the kind of nerves come in. I'm like, okay. I'm like, yeah, Brad, but you, you're crushing. You're three in a row. You got, you're back, man. You're just like back in the day. We're good. And ball comes on the sideline, and I make a poor first touch. And my coach goes, Miller, what are you doing? 
And I'm like, Miller, what are you doing? And all of a sudden, the switch came right back on. All that stuff that pours in, my brain floods me with all the mistakes I'm going to make. And I literally feel like I'm a ticking time bomb. I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm going to be the reason we lose this game. And I become super nervous about losing the ball in the back, all those things. So, of course, I start making more and more errors. It just compounds itself. Self-doubt has taken over. Now I'm convinced I'm a liability. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, because I loved my team. and I didn't want to let them down. Well, my coach, about 20 minutes in the game, who, if you know who Walt Chiswick is, Walt never took out defenders unless they were, like, seriously hurt, right, in the back. 20 minutes pulls me out and I get to the bench. True story, Scott. I sit down. My first thought is this. This is how powerful performance anxiety was for me. I sit down after five years getting yanked for a poor you know, start and I tell myself, thank goodness. I literally was like, thank goodness. Like I still to this day, I say it. And I just go, really? But that's what it was. I was convinced I only could cause harm to my team and I couldn't get out of that thought loop. And at least I wasn't going to be the reason we lost. And I never started again at Wake, got in some more games, but never started again. That was my last start. That is my burned memory in my head of how it was. But that's what self-doubt can do and performance anxiety can do when we don't have tools to manage it. I didn't have any tools, right? Right. And that's what we try to explain to coaches and clubs and players that everybody hits a wall. And at some point you have to have tools to manage the mental fitness. If you don't, you're not going to overcome it at times. Your performance is absolutely going to drop. And it's a shame because you put in all this time to build your technical, tactical, and physical. But if you don't have the mental skills to manage the emotions in the moment and regain your focus, then your skills are going to be watered down and you might even become a liability. Right. Right. But to the team and, you know, to yourself. I mean, right. yeah. Right. Um, so, all right. So there's kind of two two things that I want to get to out of that. Well, there's more than two, but the first two anyway. The first one is how do you train to, you know, manage the emotional versus the factual part of your brain? How do you, how do you get to that point where you're managing it and you know that, okay, that's an emotion, discard it potentially, you know, manage it, don't discard it necessarily. And then, you know, that was factual. So I need to pay attention to that. You know, where do you find that balance and control of your thoughts? Yeah, it's a great point. So we can't control uh, the thoughts that come in our head. So we'll do a little experiment. So for you and for your listeners here on the count of three, do not do this. Okay. Do not on a count of three. Don't think of a pink elephant, pink elephant, right? Pops in your head, right? Right. Blueberries. Right. It pops in your head. We can't make ourselves not think things. In fact, when we tell ourselves, don't think of something, we actually draw attention to it. So when I tell myself, which I used to in college all the time, Brad, don't get nervous. Brad, we're not going to be nervous. They do not be nervous. Do not be nervous. Do not be nervous. I'm just focusing on being nervous, being nervous, being nervous. And what I'm also doing is I'm training my brain to view being nervous as dangerous. So, of course, when I get nervous, now my brain totally goes into threat mode, which is that emotional brain. And now I lose focus. I'm distracted. I'm not going to perform well. So when helping us manage our emotion, right? So we've got to be able to regulate our emotion because that's how we get our thinking brain back online. So everybody needs a strategy or strategies to do that. The quickest, most effective way to get our thinking brain back online where we can, again, in our thinking brain, we feel emotions, I want to let you know, right? So I can have self-doubt, but my thinking, this is kind of my emotional brain, if for viewers who are seeing this, right? If you tuck your thumb and bring your four fingers over your thumb, 
that's where we are right now. I feel emotion where my thumb is, but my four fingers is my thinking brain. So I interpret the emotion. So we need emotion, by the way. Emotions have great information. We just want emotions to be messengers and not dictators. When we get flooded with emotions, emotions are dictators. You feel like you're going to have the worst performance. Therefore, you are Brad. So what are you going to do to avoid the worst performance of your life? Disengage, not be involved. Maybe even say I got a stomachache and say my ankle hurts and not play. What I want to avoid, right? Or we want our thinking brain to interpret that and go, Brad, of course you're nervous. Whenever something matters to you, you're going to be nervous. And the more it matters to you, the more nervous you're going to be. Let's stop dreading and fearing being nervous and let's embrace it. Let's accept it and say, I'm going to be nervous every game. I'm going to have self-doubt every game and I'm going to recognize it and notice it. And then I'm going to steer my mind in a more helpful way. So to do that, we need to one, have a type of mindset that we want to steer our thinking brain towards, but we've got to regulate that emotion, right? So a huge part of managing emotion is acceptance. What we resist persists. So so many players like, I'm not going to get nervous. I'm not going to get nervous. I'm not going to get nervous. And they fight against it. They try to bulldoze through it. I'm just going to grind through being nervous. But when we do that, we are giving so much energy and power to it that not only then is it harder, but the next time we view it as this enemy, we want to embrace and accept it and go, of course, I'm going to have it, but I'm going to recognize it and have a plan to manage it. Confidence comes from mental preparation. Part of that mental preparation, why we see those pro athletes in those big moments managing things well, because they've already predicted it. They know they're going to feel nervous. They know they're going to be tight. There's five minutes left. The ball comes on the cross. They're at the top of the 18. They beat their defender and they're about to take the shot. They understand that my body's going to get tight and tense. My brain's like, uh-oh, uh-oh, but they've worked through it. So we want to be proactive, right? So we've got to work on these things in our daily trainings to really rewire and reshape our brain. So when we get in those big games and high pressure moments, we've already trained our brain to execute the way we want it to. So managing the emotion is key. We don't want to wait until, oh, look, Brad looks nervous in the big game. Let's for the first time teach him how to breathe. Instead, let's teach Brad how to practice this every day on the field, off the field, over and over and over and over and over again. So he gets better and better and better at it. So when, not if, when he's in a big pressure moment, he knows the tools to do it. So the quickest, most effective way to regulate and manage our emotion and get that sort of thinking brain back in charge is deep belly breathing. So there's so many simple ways to do it. Um, just if, if, if you want me to go into it, I can a little bit, or if you want me just to kind of. Yeah, okay. absolutely. A great thing for, I'll give two different quick types of breathing. So one is what I just call triangle breathing. So it's in for three, in through. So when we breathe in, inhale, we want to only inhale through our nose only. So it's a slow inhale through our nose for three seconds. We want to hold our breath for three seconds. When we hold our breath, it allows more oxygen to fill up in the lungs, more sedating effect on the nervous system, more calming effect. We want to slowly exhale. It can be through our mouth or nose. Most people starting out like to exhale through their mouth for three seconds. So one triangle, three, three, three is nine seconds. So mm -hmm. if people do, you know, about uh, six triangles, seven triangles in a minute, we can really start to notice a couple of things are going to happen. When we do deep belly breathing, we are going to have a more calm, clear mind. It's not as murky and muddy. We're going to be more in the present moment because focusing on our breath is in the present moment because our breath is always in the present moment. And now my body has also released some tension. So I'm in a more optimal state of energy. So four, four, or three, 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 and then you can go to four, four, four breathing. That's great for managing things for just life. It can be academics. It can be different things. Um, what I like for performance is a different type of breathing called four, two, four breathing. Same thing. This time it's going to be slowly in through the nose for four, hold for two, 
and then slowly exhale for four. So that's 10 seconds for a triangle. Six triangles is what we recommend to do um, at least about an hour before a game, you know, maybe 80, 60 minutes before a game as a way to self-regulate. Again, get our mind more calm and clear in the present moment and get our body in an optimal state of energy. What I love about 424 is that if my motor is running too high, it brings me back to the middle. If I'm too sluggish, because stress can make us sluggish and fatigue. Sometimes people go, I don't know what's wrong with me, Brad. I start a game and I'm just kind of not checked in. It takes about 10 minutes. I got to like get physical and then touch the ball and then I do it. But if we do 424 breathing, we can get ourselves more activated and more present, better energy, optimal state of energy, not too high, not too low, right when the whistle blows. And the beautiful part about 424 is the more we do it, the more neural connections we build, the stronger it is and the better and better we get. When I do 424 breathing now, it is light years better than it was the very first time I tried. Just like everything else in our technical, tactical, physical, the more we do it, the better and better we get at it. So breathing is crucial. So to me, that is one of the mandatory skills we have to have in life and also for performance. We have to know how to regulate ourselves so that 424 breathing. So what I would recommend to you just for people listening is that when you inhale, you want to push your belly out. And when you exhale, you want to slowly bring your belly in. So a simple way is put your hand on your chest and one on your stomach. And when you inhale, you push your belly out. And when you exhale, you bring your belly in. That's activating the diagram, getting much more air in and a much more deeper breath, which is going to give you much more of that effect. So 424 breathing is crucial. If we uh, watch any pro game you want to see, watch them take PKs. Watch them take that breath in and then they exhale. Then they run to take right? Ronaldo's famous right stance, right? He mm -hmm. kind of does his body language and does. He does a big, deep breath in, big out, big in, big out. Same thing. He's clearing his mind. He's getting his body in an optimal state of energy because when our body is more relaxed, we can have better performance. When it's tight and tense, we don't perform as well. So with this breathing, we can also do many, many resets during a game. So I can do a four, two, four reset. I can just breathe in for four, hold two, out four, and I'm back in the moment letting go of a mistake, uh, getting frustrated about a poor call, uh, our team's not performing as well, um, whatever's kind of going on. A player gets hurt, injured, red card, stoppage time, set pieces, all those things. So those resets are very, very important, right? We got to bring our mind back. So how do we manage that emotion? Breathing is key. So just going back to your question, I would have loved to have learned breathing. Now, truth be told, being a college, you know, guy, 20, 21, 22, would I have thought it was weird? 100%. Would I have been open to it? I don't know. You know, today... I am, right? But when I first learned about this stuff, I was just dumb. I'm like, I'm not going to tell people to breathe. I'm from the East Coast. I live in San Diego. All my friends are like, oh, what do you like? Have like lava lamps in your room. Do you like levitate on pillows? So I'm like, I'm not going to be that guy who teaches people to breathe. I was slow to the party, but the evidence is crystal clear. It is so dynamic and it has changed uh, people's games on the field, off the field by breathing. So highly recommend 333. I want to grow up to 444. Just to help you kind of like regulate, manage the emotion, get more focused. But for performance, uh, studying for soccer, 424 for a minute minimum is is really important. That's definitely part of everybody's pregame ritual you want to have. Um, are you finding that um, players, youth players are more accepting of this idea? Um, it's not a, a woo-woo thing that, uh, you know, there's definitely evidence. You know, we've all, uh, I mean, I've seen the evidence. In science. There's definitely a lot of literature on the benefits of this kind of breath work. So you're finding that it's more accepted than it was, you know, maybe when we were kids. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Right. And, and, and the way that you know, we talk to pro athletes, college athletes, you athletes is the same way. 
we just go, look, you don't have to work on mental fitness. You really don't. It's up to you. But if you choose not to, now that you know how the brain's wired, you are going to spend the rest of your life, not just on the field, but off the field, having your brain go, don't worry, I'll take the steering wheel. I got you. You just go have fun. I'll, I'll drive. And it's going to go four negative thoughts to every one positive thought. We're going to get hijacked a lot more. We're going to have pregame anxiety, during game anxiety. Oh, and after the game, when we like, you know, are kind of like evaluating how we performed and when our friends and parents and family, whatever coaches go, hey, that's a pretty good game for you today, Brad. Okay. I'm like, no, it wasn't. I did this. I did this. And I'm stuck in the negative. And why can't I get out of the negative? Because my brain's wired to do so. So we tell people, you don't have to do anything. So then we go, but if you want to change that, you want to actually better perform better, have more confidence and have more joy in doing soccer, which when we obviously know it's not a surprise, when you're having more fun, you play better, then you're going to need to do mental training. And that's when they go, oh, yeah, I don't want to keep getting hijacked. I don't want to get frustrated and then be checked out. I don't want to make a mistake and go into this deep negative spiral for 10 minutes. I don't want to be that player. Right. right. This is how we do it. And we tell them and go there again. It's not complicated. 424 breathing is not complicated, but the challenge is to do it consistently, right? And that's really what mental fitness is. Most of the techniques, they're not complicated. They really aren't, but it just takes consistency. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so, so that's how we get more buy-in with breathing. And once people do it, they come back and are like, whoa. You know, I would yeah. say about 95% of the players we work with uh, find it incredibly helpful. And many um, of them say, this has changed my ability to refocus recover from setbacks and manage those pregame nerves. So what does that practice look like um, for, for most people? Is it very, or is there kind of a best practice um, of when with, and where? Or, yeah. 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 So, so if we want to be able to have breathing be more effective, just like working on our first touch, right? The more and more we can do to train it, the better it's going to be. So what we recommend is practice four to four breathing. Uh, twice a day for at least a minute each time when the stress level is lower. We want to learn a skill when stress is low, right? If I'm learning piano, I don't want to go practice in front of 10,000 people, right? That's going to be much harder. So we want people to breathe when the stress is lower so they can get more familiar and get more comfortable with it, right? Some people, they go right away, they do 424 for a minute and go, whoa, yeah, I could tell. Some go, eh, I don't know. And they do it for a couple of days. And then about a week, they're like, oh, okay, now I get it. So we want them to practice when stress is low and say, then if you want to use it when stress is high, that's totally fine. But know that when you're beginning to learn it, it's not, and it's not magic, by the way, but it is the quickest, most effective way that thinking brain back online, right? So, and we can do it short, even just a breath in for three, out for three is enormously helpful to do that. So we recommend, you know, a four, two, four breathing, uh, two times a day for a minute each. Um, and then when it comes to training, we highly recommend do 424 breathing. If you're driving to training or if you're there, do that before training to get your mind you know, more clear in the present moment, body ready to go. And then when it comes for games, we recommend do that 60, 80 minutes before uh, doing that is a great way. And then during warm-ups, sometimes players will kind of do a version of that themselves. They do like a one four two four. They might do it for 30 seconds. Uh, we actually had the... Uh, uh, David Critch, I think, if I'm thinking his last name correctly, with the uh, St. Louis City FC, one of the clubs I've been working with for three years, the U-17s, he did it one time before a game when they got really nervous and stressed. Um, I worked with the San Jose Earthquakes uh, team um, going into the MLS Next Academy, and they hadn't had mental training before. So we did um, a, a session before they started the MLS Next Cup. Uh, they kind of you know, played in the qualify and we taught them 4-2-4 breathing. And I said, I want you guys to do this 
you know, and like an hour before the game, right? And everybody kind of practiced it, coaches everybody. And then I met with them before they got around the 16. And then when they got to the surprising round of the semifinals and they came back and said, you know, that 4-2-4 breathing, we're doing it before every game, before our trainings, and it's really helping. It's also a great thing for film study, right? You're going to watch film. Our brains are going, oh, great, here we go. I already know where my three mistakes were, and I'm just dreading it. Oh, God, I just, here comes minute 20. Oh, no. Yep, yep, freaking megged you and beat you, Brad. Here we go. Yep, here's that pass you turned over, and they counter and score. Great. But if I can breathe before, I can get my thinking brain to go, hey, Brad, yep, your mistakes are going to be there for sure but let's learn from them. Watching them on film gives you a unique advantage to do that, right? Other people made mistakes too, so did you. Try to learn from it and not just avoid it and shut your eyes and feel in shame, right? Try to learn from it, okay? Challenge yourself, right? Be mentally challenged yourself right here and learn from it. So breathing can be used in multiple facets um, and just the more and more we do it. So we have coaches, we recommend coaches. You get players who are kind of distracted and not really present. Hey, hey, we're gonna take a minute and do four, two, four breathing. I'm gonna lead, let's go. We do that for a minute. Okay, now let's get started. That's how you get your brain to be present where your feet are, even if you're still thinking about a class you just had or a relationship you're in or a friendship or what's coming up this weekend or the game's coming up. So it's a really good thing. And the more and more coaches can utilize that with their players, the more players see this as just a thing to help them get ready and prepared, the more open they will be to use it independently as well. Awesome. Um, I want to go back to your story about yeah. when you got pulled out of the game. And uh, your coach yelled at you, um, someone who you obviously respected and um, it meant a lot to you that he was being critical of you in that moment. Um, how could that have been handled differently, A? And B, do you feel like the people that you work with now, that you're you're teaching them to be resilient in those moments and not become doubtful of themselves in those, you know, those moments when, you know, you know, you screwed up and you're yelling at yourself and, you know, now someone who's very important to you is, is, is being critical of you as well. So, you know, maybe that's kind of a, a two pronged question there, um, two separate questions, but um, yeah. How do you teach coaches? I guess the questions would be, how do you, how are you teaching coaches to handle those moments, you know, yeah. through psycho resilience? And then we'll do the other question after. Okay. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Um, well, so so with 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 Walt, who was my head coach, and Jay Vidovich was my assistant coach. Very very fortunate to have two amazing coaches, and they I give them a lot of credit. They they knew that I was hard on myself. They didn't have to get on me very much. Other players they would get on much more than me. So they were both attuned and, and aware. They didn't mm -hmm. need to pile on to me, right? right? And so really, like my coach is like Miller, what are we doing, right? I mean, it's pretty yeah. you know benign, but to me yeah. it was like. Oh my gosh. But, you know, but to your point, it's a good one is that we not only want players to be mentally prepared, right? Confidence comes from preparation. So we encourage players, we call it the triple P's. And we do this with coaches too. The triple P's are you want to predict challenges. So we tell coaches, let's predict two or three challenges you're likely going to experience during the game. Mm -hmm. Two or three things are going to be challenging for you. It might be if we can see the goal early, it might be um, if my team's effort is really poor to start. It might be um, if players abandon the game plan and just start sending the ball along, um, you know, whatever it's going to be. If the referee makes a poor call, but the, but the coaches go, this is specific to me. Like a lot of them apply to all of us, but what's specific to me? So we have the coaches list, those two or three challenges they're going to experience in a game. Okay. 
Okay, now we want you to predict that this is going to happen. We can't always predict the exact call the referee is going to make, but if I know I struggle and the referee makes a poor call, that's one of the things I'm going to predict. So now I am mentally prepared. These things are going to happen, right? Okay, now we go, what's your plan going to be for each one of those challenges? Sometimes you can have the same plan for all three, but a different one. What are you going to do? What's my mm -hmm. plan when the ref makes a poor call? What's our plan when we concede a goal early? What's the plan when the team abandons, gets stressed out, abandons the game plan and starts sending it long? Okay, this is my plan, not just technically and tactically, but mentally, right? What is my mental plan for me to manage it well? What does my team need from me? And what do I need to convey? And how do I do that in a way that I'm modeling resilience for them? If I go, what are we doing out there? My hand's in the air. I'm just adding to the problem, right? They're not like, Oh, wait a minute, right? That's like it's like coach lost his head. Well, then we should lose our head because if a coach lost his head, it must be a disaster, right? And now the players get more and more stressed. So we talk a lot about Morris Cawthon taught, right? Your players are gonna model and watch what you do. So coaches have an enormously difficult job to manage not only their players, the referees, perhaps parents, if you're a youth coach, whatever it is, but you've got to also manage your emotion, right? Because they are looking to you, are we okay or not okay? I and mean, there's so many times I look at my coach and be like, Coach seems calm. I guess we're okay, right? And sometimes I had a coach who kind of freaked out. I'm like, yep, it's freaking a disaster, <laughs> right? So it's usually important. So we have them mentally prepare, have a plan to respond well, right? So if the referee makes a poor call and maybe we've got people in the stands, parents, fans, whatever, yelling, freaking out, and the players getting that, you know I mean? How do I want to conduct myself? What's the message I want to send to them, Right. And so a big part is we, we move on to the next play, right? We move on to the next play. So I, as a coach, need to not be stuck in it, right? I need to move on. You know, some coaches will kind of do something. It could be like this, kind of going, hey, guys, next play. We're back, right? We're back. Let's go. Next play. Oh, wait, coach is letting it go. I can let it go, right? Those things are important. Obviously, as a coach, sometimes it, it's, it's you know, tactically wise to go and argue with the referee and make your point, right? There's, I mean, a lot of things. So I'm not just saying you act. But how we do that is important. That's knowing your team. If my team really freaks out when I freak out, then I need to then dial it down, right? Sometimes my team gets inspired when I show some emotion. So that's kind of depending too, right? But we have a plan to respond well mentally, not just tactically, but mentally to all those things, right? What am I going to say? How can I do it? What's my body language going to look like, right? A huge thing that coaches can do is body language is so crucial, right? 93% of communication, they say, is nonverbal. So it's not just the words, but what happens when, when a player makes a mistake, where do their eyes typically go? Down. Yeah, yeah down. they go yeah. down, right? And sometimes it's like up to the sky. Right. So a really simple thing that coaches can do in that, in that triple piece, that plan to respond well, is stay eyes level. So the coach doesn't need to look down. They don't need to look up, eyes level, right? If you can do that, you stay engaged, by the way, your brain goes, okay, we're okay. When we look down, the brain's like, uh-oh, we're in danger. You got to like, you know, go in the turtle shell, right? Or look up, things are bad. But when our eyes are level, it's like things are okay. So a coach can have their eyes level, make eye contact, ideally with the person who made the mistake and be like, Miller, Miller, let's go. Let's keep working, right? We're good. If a coach can tell a player, Miller, Let's keep working. Let's keep going. That's going to help me let go, right? You obviously know the psychology of each player, but overall what we, what we talk to uh, coaches about is if you want to be resilient, you have to model resilience yourself and encourage your players, send the message you believe they're capable of bouncing back, right? When we go, what are you doing out there? Are you serious? Miller, how many times did I tell you this? Well, they just sent the message to me that they think I'm going to keep messing up. 
It's just a matter of time before they take me out. And then I start to overly focus on that, not on the play and my performance and confidence drops. So we talk to coaches a lot about how to be encouraging. You need to like, you know, hey, you know, Brad, learn from it. If, if you think I know what happened, like, you, you know, I know better. I just made, I, I dove in. I know not to dive in. It's just like, hey, Brad, next play, we're back, right? We're back. Let's go. Then that's fine. If I don't know that and a player need, and a coach needs to instruct me, then I need to hear that. Hey, Brad, we don't dive in, right? We force them outside. We force them outside, right? Be patient, right? Be patient. Okay, then I need that instruction, but they're still telling me something, give me an instruction suggesting that I'm capable of doing it next time. So that's what's so important, right? We want our players to believe they're capable of bouncing back, making a better choice, keeping a high level of effort. So how we communicate that is crucial. We don't right. often don't think is we get frustrated as coaches, we're human beings, right? But mm -hmm. when we do that, the message we send, and that creates more self doubt and lower confidence. So having a plan to mentally respond well. When we give up a goal early, like when the ref makes a poor call, when our team's going away from our game plan, how am I going to communicate that? And then they think it through. And then you want to mentally rehearse that so we can visualize, you know, a team going down early and then visualizing myself responding well is great. You can just kind of think it through. And then I would encourage you now go to training and you as a coach go, these are the three situations I struggle with in the game. I want to see what's the parallel in training and practice. Okay, in practice, what's going We're doing a small-sided scrimmage, and you know they're getting bent out of shape about a call. Like someone's like, "You fouled me." No, I didn't. Right? How can I respond there to train me to do it for a game? Okay. How about uh, we're doing a scrimmage, and a team gives up a goal early, and and I'm just so disappointed. Like we already gave up a goal in the scrimmage, right? Inter-squad scrimmage. How do I respond there? Okay, right? Okay. The team is getting away from our technical plan. We're playing for a side. I told them how I wanted to play. They've totally abandoned it now, and it's just chaos. This is how I'm going to do it. So trying to predict where those things will show up in training and responding well then, and that trains your brain to this over and over. So when you're in games and big pressure moments, your brain's much more likely to execute it. So mm -hmm. mental preparation is key, right? That's how we respond well, but we've got to train ourselves mentally every day. And then if you're off the field, maybe there's not a training day with your team, then go, okay, how am I going to deal and respond when I get stuck in traffic? And that's something unexpected, right? How am I going to deal when my spouse says something I don't like? And literally finding those parallels, and that's that training on the field, off the field, that makes it happen on the field. So it's really about being proactive, thinking ahead, but predicting it. If we don't predict things, here's what happens. That So our brain has threat mode and challenge mode. Threat mode is kind of more like the emotional brain. It's like, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. And we either like go fight or flight, right? We're going to attack, we're going to withdraw, but we often try to avoid and kind of shut things down. We're distracted. We don't perform as well. We're not managing our emotion. Well, that's threat mode. We all know threat mode. Mm -hmm. Challenge mode is, okay, this is hard. This is difficult, but I've got the capacity to do it. I'm going to go towards it and take it on. So we want to steer our brain to challenge mode, right? Breathing is a quick way to get our brain in challenge mode. Another way to get our brain into threat mode, the two things that put our brain in threat mode quickest are is uncertainty, not knowing something. Our brain does not like not knowing, and our brain does not like negative surprises. Uncertainty, not knowing, and negative surprises, two things that put our brain in threat mode the quickest. And again, it comes back to saber two tiger days. It always comes back about why the brain does what it does. When we left the cave, if we were going to survive, we couldn't not know where danger was. You and I couldn't walk out, Scott, and go, do you think that sound was a saber tooth, Scott, or was that just something else? Right. I don't know. You're like, yeah, I don't know either. Well, that's not going to work well because if it was a saber tooth, now we're going to be lunch. 
So when right. the brain didn't know if something was safe or not, good or bad, it goes, it's bad, it's dangerous, run, 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 run. That's our default mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. Again, it works with saber-tooth tigers. Well, negative surprises, what gives us a better chance of survival? When we see a saber-tooth five feet away or 50 feet away? Right. So but in essence... So, so yeah, so 50 feet away. So that's how our brain's wired. So we don't want to have a negative surprise, right? Mm -hmm. And so by predicting things, we take the surprise element away. We take uncertainty away because we've already told ourselves when we go down early, when a ref makes a poor call, when the players abandon the game plan, I'm going to do this. Now, some people go, well, Brad, all you're doing is inviting negativity. Why would you bring negativity? Isn't our brain already wired to go negative? And the answer is, if I just tell myself that these negative things without a plan, then yes, that's not helpful. But predicting them takes the power away from them. And how our brain's wired, this is really, really crucial. Resilience, our brain will take on enormous challenges. Our brain will let us go towards lots of difficult things if, and this is really important, if we tell it what to expect. That's why telling people, you got this, oh, don't worry, it's easy. That doesn't work because the brain goes, well, sweet, no reason to worry, no challenges ahead. And then we have a challenge. Now we have a negative surprise. We overreact and we don't perform well. Instead, we go, hey, these things are going to happen. I'm going to have adversity every training, every game. And here's my plan to manage it. Now, when the adversity comes, that's how a lot of teams can roll with it because they're mentally prepared for it. They're like, yeah, we're down early. That sucks. But they kind of keep going because they have been mentally prepared for it and trained for it. Those that right. aren't mentally prepared flip their lid, go into threat mode, and they don't perform well. And one zero turns into four zero by half. Right. So in essence, it's kind of training yourself to be a fighter instead of a flighter. Right. So you're. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I was thinking that when you're talking about the coach, like you, a coach, the coach's role is to encourage someone to continue to fight rather than just curling up in a ball in essence. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so if we can equip kids and players, college players and pro players with the specific skills, mm -hmm. right? That's what's so crucial. Cause we tell players all the time, push through it, push through it. How be confident, be confident. How, like how are you actually going to do that? So right. we need to give them tools or else we're setting them up. The uh, Navy SEALs have a great motto that I like that says, uh, under pressure, we don't rise to the occasion. We rather sink to our level of training. Right. So that's what I really hope that people understand is that if we don't mentally train players and put them in high pressure environments, they're going to struggle more. And then we're going to determine, oh, they don't really have what it takes. Their technical, tactical, physical isn't what it is. Right. Um, I mean, there's lots of teams that, that sometimes uh, MLS Next Academy teams have U17 players. They'll go, OK, let's put them on the first team. Have them go train with the first team for a couple of weeks. No mental training, no mental preparation. Nobody's like, hey, just so you know, they're bigger, faster and stronger. You're going to make a lot more mistakes. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a challenge. You're going to have self-doubt pour in your head. It's OK. Mm -hmm. You're just there to challenge yourself. And by going after it, you're going to learn and grow. Your challenge is to learn and grow. Don't get so caught up about how am I fitting in? Where am I in the depth chart? Do I belong here? Just want you to learn and grow, right? Focus on a couple specific actions you're going to do every training to help you do better. And that's just going to be, if you're a defender, hey, a strong and tackles challenge headers, strong and tackles challenge headers. Okay, that's what I'm going to focus my energy on. So when mm -hmm. I get nervous, strong and tackles challenge headers. That's how I redirect myself. Bring myself in the back in the present moment. Maybe do a couple of resets of breathing when I need it. 
And I'm like, dude, I'm proud of myself. I'm going after it. Yeah, it's scary to go play against this first team, man. But you know what? I'm doing it. And I don't know what the outcome's going to be, but I know I'm going to grow from it. Just keep going after it, buddy. And every time you step on the field through training, even if you perform kind of poorly, be proud of yourself for going after it. So when we train them and give them tools and strategies, now we get to see where someone's actually at. If not, kid goes up to the first team, struggles, comes back down, their confidence is shot. Their performance is lower now than when they started two weeks ago. And we're like, how do, get, how, how do we get this kid back? But we have set them up to really have more struggles and not help them have the tools to manage it. So that's why we've got to give them the training. Right. Um, for both uh, coaches and players. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. And the same thing, right? It's like, you know, that, that if coaches aren't given tools and strategies, then, you know, we're just trying to wing it. And again, like me in college, I mean, I could wing it some. It works sometimes, but self-doubt and emotions will come in and rob us of our confidence. And if we don't know how to regroup and reset, we can stay stuck there. Right. Yeah. Um, I collected some questions from some current student athletes. Yeah. And, uh, one of the first ones was, uh, you know, how can players stay confident even when things aren't going smoothly? Um, and, you, you know, that's basically what you've been talking about um, is finding finding your reset and finding how to stay present, right? And not worry about the outcome or not worry about the past. Like, do I have yeah. that about right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say, I mean, keys to the confidence is when that mental preparation, mm-hmm. saying, I know challenges are coming my way. I know adversity is coming my way, but I have mm-hmm. the capacity to take this on. And here's my plan, right? Making it predictable, having a plan, that's going to be an enormous part of our confidence, right? And then, okay, that plan is how we kind of reset, right? It might be a breathing reset. It might be focus on two actions, like I just kind of mentioned, that can help do that. Um, it can be, we have a thing called feel your feet, where you focus on your feet, you know, and like firmly plant on the ground. You really focus your mind there. It brings you in the present moment. So the different tools and stra- having that sort of resilient thinking where it's like, hey, let's grow today. Let's grow today. Let's grow right. today, right? Where that's where your focus is, rather, am I going to win? Am I going to start? What are my minutes? So what's the outcome? Am I going to goal? Um, those are some really crucial parts of, of confidence, but it needs to, there's to be mental preparation with a plan. And then we're practicing that plan over and over and over again. So when those moments come, we're used to it, not waiting to do breathing for the first time. Oh my gosh, I have a big game tomorrow. I guess I'll try that breathing for the first time. It can help, but it's not going to be nearly as effective if I've been doing it week after week and day after day. Right. Where does, um, in your practice, where do you include meditation? Where does that fit into what you teach people? Yeah, meditation is awesome. I love Mm -hmm. it. Uh, Some cool things about meditation is we often think of meditation, and meditation is really just sort of like trying to bring our mind back to the present, right? Our mind wanders a lot. And as we know, our mind wanders to four negative thoughts to every one positive thought. That's why the Buddhist monks call it monkey mind and the neuro uh, you know, scientists call it uh, the default mode network, whatever name we want to give it, our brain wanders to negative places. So people think of meditation, I'm good at meditation if I don't lose focus. And it's actually the opposite. Every time our mind drifts and we bring it back to the present, we just got a mental rep in. We just did a rep. So if mm-hmm. I want to really be able to improve my focus and bring my mind to the present moment, right? Our superpower is being in the present moment. That's when we have optimal performance. If we can have, we have to be in the present moment, fully engaged in the present moment to have optimal performance. Breathing is a great way. 
Um, and meditation can train our brain to do this off the field as well. So meditation I can do, you know, maybe I'm going to take like five minutes. I can go on YouTube and find a guided meditation, right? Where it kind of walks me through kind of like a body scan tells me what to focus on. That's a great way to train. Um, I can just focus on my breath. I just focus on, you know, push my belly out as I inhale, push my belly in, exhale, lots of different ways to, to focus. But what meditation does is every time our mind drifts, cause it totally well, we bring it back to the present, bring it back to the present, bring it back to the present. I'm getting my reps in. So now when I'm in a game and my mind drifts of like, oh my gosh, is coach, who's warming up? Is coach taking me out back in the present moment? Are we going to win this game? Oh my gosh, we're five minutes away. I still want to win this game back in the present moment. Oh my gosh, Brad, you have really struggled the first half. You come back in the second half. Are you going to build back in the present moment, right? Trying to bring ourselves back in the present moment. That's what meditation gives us. So when we're in those moments, my mind comes. That's what helps people take PKs too, by the way. If I practice meditation, I'm really good at training my mind to come back in the moment, not in the, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Our brain's hardwired to go outcome, 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 right? Mm -hmm. We're going to win, we're going to lose, we're going to score all those things. And that puts us in threat mode because we can't control outcomes. I can't control if I win because that involves my teammates, the opponent, the field conditions, referees, everything. The keeper might play out of his or her head. Can't help right. that. I had three great shots in the upper 90. Keeper saved them all. There you go, right? So we can't control those things to so bring our mind to what we can control, which is our effort and our attitude and being in the present moment. And that's where meditation is. And so, yeah, we definitely talk to athletes about meditation. Um, what, what, what I found a, a actual really great practice for meditation I actually did this is I gave myself what I call the one minute rule. I used to tell myself in a very fixed mindset way, if you meditate for less than 10 minutes, it's worthless, has no value. So that was a lie. It's not true, by the way, but that's how I told myself. And so basically I was super inconsistent. I'd maybe do it two, three, four times a week. And I finally go, you know what? I'm tired of being so up and down. I want to be consistent. So I go, Brad, I'm giving yourself a 30 day challenge. I go for one minute a day. I want you to meditate just one minute. That's it for 30 days. And my brain was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life, Brad. How helpful is that going to be? You're, you're not even getting any benefit. This is stupid. Who came with this great idea? So I'm like, but I stuck with it. I did miss a day, but I was 29 out of 30 days and something really cool happened that as it went on and on, I was like, dude, you are being consistent with this. You haven't been this consistent with any mental practice yet. This is awesome. So after 30 days, I go, okay, let's go five minutes. And that was about a year ago. And I have missed two days in almost an entire year mm -hmm. and never been consistent with meditation. But the 30 day rule happens. So for anything we're trying and meditation is a great one, just start with a minute, do it 30 days, build the ability to consistently show up. Then you can add more time. Then you can raise the floor, right? Get consistency, get momentum. Now raise the floor from one to five minutes. And there you go. And then you can be more consistent with it. So that's a really great way to do meditation. But a lot of people don't do meditation and stop because they think I'm bad at it again. If your mind wanders, awesome. You're getting a ton of reps in. You know, there's times I'll meditate for five minutes and I will go, did you even like focus on like, I don't even know if I did, right? It totally yeah. happens to all of us, right? But we accept it, a big part of acceptance. We accept our mind wanders. We accept we have negative thoughts. We accept we have negative feelings. We don't give them a lot of energy at fuel the fire and just try to redirect our focus back to the present or go, hey, Brad, next time when you meditate, let's see if we can do a little bit better. Maybe I'm going to breathe for a minute before I meditate. So I'm more in the present moment, then I'm going to meditate. That might be the call. Cool. Let's try that. So just from a, a kind of a detail standpoint for those who may or may not be familiar necessarily with meditation. So what does that look like 
physically? Are you lying down? Are you sitting? Are you, you know, what is, are your eyes closed? Uh, is there music playing? You know, what, what does that look like? Yeah. You know, what, that's going to potentially produce the best, you know, uh, stick to it in this, I guess. Yeah. So uh, you can be in a chair, uh, you can lie down, you kind of find your comfort zone. If you're in a chair, it works best to have your back straight, your feet on the floor, don't cross your arms, don't cross your legs. Um, there's different, all different types of meditation. I like to close my eyes. It just helps me be more focused on my breath. That's what we kind of call interoception. Uh, it's just where you focus more inward. Uh, some people, you can do a meditation where you just kind of look and focus on a picture and just keep your focus on that. You know, for a minute, your mind's going to wander, but you just bring it back to the picture, bring back the picture. So you can do it something internal, external. Um, what I do is just close my eyes for, you know, like for one, five, 10 minutes, whatever I'm going to do it. I sit in a chair and I just kind of have a quiet. I like it dark. I just not as distracting. And I just like, I'll just start focusing on my breath and just have mm -hmm. it going in and out, in and out. And then I'll go, okay, now let's focus on uh, when you breathe in through your nose, it's colder and you breathe out, it's warmer. So I'll breathe in and kind of picture my breath coming through my nose and going into my belly and my belly makes it warm. As I exhale, it's kind of warm, kind of coming out. So it's be like cold and warm, kind of like that. And I'll just do it in and out through my nose. Um, lots of different ways. YouTube's got some great guided meditation, which is often a good place to start where someone's directing you and guiding you. Okay, let's close your eyes. Let's focus on your, you know, your face, relax your eyelids, relax your tongue, relax your mouth, right? Breathe in and we breathe out. Okay, now let's go to your shoulders, drop your shoulders. A lot of people like that. So there are different ways to do that. And I think it's finding your own, uh, all the things in mental fitness is just like coaching, parenting, playing, is that you, the more you want to personalize it and make it yours, the more you're going to buy into it and the more effective it's going to be. So there's mm -hmm. no one way to do it. Those are just some good places to start. And like the habit building. So you think, it, are you saying it takes 30 days to build a habit or does it, what's the, the science on that? To, well, to they that? used to say it was like 64 days and now they say it's more, or 62 days. Now it's more like 144 days. Um, it, it, it takes a while, but what we need is momentum. What we tend to do. So for example, if I'm going to start a practice of meditation, we tend to look for home run. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm going to like meditate for like 20 minutes. And let's say I do, well, my brain knows I'm not going to do that consistently, especially from the beginning. So that's what happens. Then I can't live up to that. It gets inconsistent. My motivation drops and I'd quit. So mm -hmm. instead it's kind of like start with a lower floor, right? I, I'm, I'm like a lower ceiling, right? So I'm going to say like one minute's my max, but be consistent with it and then build it slowly, right? And then build it slowly. That has more staying power. That's why we start and stop things all the time. We have to master the art of showing up for our habit before we can start to really raise it to a certain thing. Gotcha. Right? Okay. And it's the same in fitness. Be like, okay, I'm, I'm getting shaped for New Year's. Okay, I'm going to go to the gym and have like a two-hour workout. Well, you and I both know that someone's not going to probably do a two-hour workout every day, right? But that becomes the expectation. And so instead, it's like, you know, I mean, you can literally go to the gym for five minutes a day for right. six weeks master the art of showing up and build on it and you'll have more staying power in the beginning it's not going to be as great but you can build consistency we've got to build momentum and consistency and then we raise you know i mean that floor as we go and that's how we get ourselves to a higher level more consistently gotcha um cool i that was unexpected to delve so deeply into meditation that was good um <laughs> so uh one question i got uh was um 
from someone who, who, uh, you know, is a college soccer player and, um, is finding themselves kind of falling out of love with the game. And Mm -hmm. they've kind of focused on it being a job and, you know, they don't like the fact that they've fallen out of love with it. And, you know, how do you reconnect and how do you take steps to, you know, find the joy again and, and, and finding the passion for what you once loved, so to speak? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I, I certainly can relate to that. Um, you know, I, as I mentioned, I had a love-hate relationship with soccer. And, you know, at, at, a, at a higher level, uh, the commitment gets more, the time, the sacrifice is more. And when we're not sometimes getting the reward from it, it does can lead to burnout and feeling not as invested, not enjoying it as much. Um, so a really important thing is to, to get that joy back is, one, is we really got to harness, like, why? What's our purpose? Like, why am I willing to go through all the grinds, all the sacrifices, all the injuries, all the ups and downs? Why? And that needs mm-hmm. to be compelling. The thing that motivated me when I was at Wake was I was like, I, I want to help my team. I want to help my team. And that was my thing. So when I didn't start, I'd be bummed. But I was like, I get to cheer on my team. You know, when I got pulled out of that game mentioning against Virginia, my fourth consecutive start did not go well. When, you know, I, I was thinking about it's kind of funny. We, we had a, a Renew Your Resilience Summit and I shared a story in that for those uh, who were able to follow that. And um, I was like, you know, so like try to find something in a difficult time. I'm like, well, looking back, I didn't realize at the time, but when I got yanked out and I'm on the bench, the first thing I did was cheer for the person who came in for me. And we were competing for time, right? So like I was bummed because I just opened the door to go, Brad, you made this way harder on yourself, right? And but I cheer for that person and I sincerely cheer for them. It wasn't always easy internally, but I cared about my team enough to do that. And today I really respect that. You know, in the moment I didn't quite put it together, but I'm like, I, I'm proud of that. But my purpose was that strong. Right. I mm-hmm. wanted to help my team. And so if that meant sometimes it wasn't about me, then I still would do my part and support and help and encourage. And so I think it's really important. Right? We're feeling burnout. It's like we've got to find our why. You know, Nietzsche mm-hmm. says that, you know, he who has a why or one who has a why can bear almost any how. We need to know our why. So we need to have that purpose. And sometimes that's just kind of exploring, like, you know, what's enjoyable about soccer? If we're like, I'm not sure my why is anymore. And saying, well, if you weren't playing soccer, what would you miss? What would you be bummed out about? Or if you got a break and went back, what are you looking forward to? Sometimes that's the way to guide us to our purpose, right? But we want to find that purpose because that really is our fuel to keep us going, you know, and, and sort of like a, as a quote, it says, purpose is the uh, the water to drown out self-doubt, right? It really is. It's kind of like, hey, I know why I'm doing this. And if we don't know why we're doing this, our brain steers us in a negative direction and goes, why are you doing this, Brad? You're struggling. You're not playing well. You're miserable. Quit. Quit. What are you doing? Your team, some of your teammates have quit. Why are you still going? You don't play all that much. You compare to people who are right. Why are you doing this, right? But that purpose keeps us going. So that's important to, to refine that purpose. And purpose changes with time. So it's good to always reflect and check back in and say, well, that's one. And then two, is it that I, you know, are it's are the negative thoughts, you know what I mean, getting a better the better of me? Is it that right. I actually, you know, if I if I was able to be more accurate in my head, would I see some really good things about playing soccer still? Like are there right. still is it the friendships, the competition? Do I still enjoy it? Just my negative thoughts are harder to manage. And if the answer is yeah, the negative thoughts get in the way, which they you know often do, I've got my purpose. Now it's like, okay, I need to redirect my mind away from results and outcomes, right? That's when we tend to feel really bad, right? I'm not getting the results that I wanted. I put all this effort in 
And the brain wants us to shy away from keeping doing that because it doesn't want us to feel discouraged and down. So really shifting our mind, what we call a growth mind, so that resilient thinking where it's really about my goal is to be in competition with me. I can't control if coach plays me. I can't control if I start. I can't control this position, but I can control my effort and attitude, my willingness to grow. Would I respect myself? Would I build my self-respect if I brought in a strong effort and attitude to training? And the answer is yes and say, okay, that's my goal. When I walk off the field, the first thing I want to check in with myself is, did you give a strong effort? Did you have a good attitude? You know what? I built my self-respect. Even if I maybe struggled in training, even if maybe coach put me in a group that made me feel like I didn't have as much value, I built my self-respect because I kept a strong effort and a good attitude. And that's what I can control. So that helps me start to view soccer as I need to see a balance. My brain's going to remember all the things that aren't going well, what I'm upset about, but I need to find the things that matter to me, bring me joy, fulfill my purpose. And building self-respect is huge. Anything we can do in life where we're building our self-respect more than lowering, that's a great thing to do. So challenging ourselves. And it takes a lot of self-respect to keep working when we're not getting rewarded with playing time, positions, our enjoyment. And so I think that's another important thing to do and find ways to... The, the competitions with yourself. Hey, you know what? If I could grow this way in a week, that would be cool. I'm in competition with me today and me next week. I'm going to check in next Monday and see what I've like done that's improved from where I was a week ago. And if I can find even one thing, let's go. That's me doing that, right? And to say, I don't know what my rest of my college career, my youth career is going to play out, but I want it to go this way. I want to be someone that can look back and say, I gave, I wasn't perfect, but I gave overall a strong effort, good attitude maybe help my team, whatever my purpose is. Okay, if I can do that, then there's a lot to be proud of. So it's really shifting our mind to those things and seeing if that kind of reignites some enjoyment, right? Some passion, right? What are those things? But also a great thing to do is have balance. As a college soccer player, as a pro player, there's so, and even as a lot of youth players, is there's so lack of balance sometimes. It's like, I have to, everything's gotta be soccer, soccer, soccer. And what we know we actually perform better when we have a balance because if every part of my identity, when I was a total performance identity player at Wake, my identity rests in my performance. Play well, Brad, you're awesome. You have value. Play poorly. You don't have value. You stink. Nobody likes you, right? So much of that was what would be in my mind and it put all this pressure. But in time, I actually learned a little bit better in my last years to have like in the summer, I would never do anything. It was always train, 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 train. And I drove cross country my junior year with two friends from high school, the other way from high school, first time I let myself do that. And it was probably one of the best things I ever did. Because I was like, there's life outside of soccer, Brad. But when there's not, then soccer has to be everything. And it's too much pressure for one thing. So we want to have more of a identity that has life outside of soccer. I'll just share something really quick. Kara Cara, one of our pro ambassadors, first female ambassador, uh, plays the Chicago Red Stars, eight-year pro, All-American Notre Dame, two-time individual champion. She's a very strong player. Uh, won a U-20 uh, national, uh, a World Cup with the U.S. Women's National Team. And she said what saved her pro career was she intentionally planned something to do for fun after every game, no matter what. If she started, didn't start at all, played well, played poorly, team won or lost, she would purposely go, I'm doing this. I'm going to go with friends to a movie. We're going to go have dinner. We're going to go out, whatever it is. And she did that because she said when she was at Notre Dame, when she lost, she was like, no, you have to stay in the room and be miserable. Because you brought this, right? You didn't do your part, right? And just be miserable. Somehow that was going to change things. So she instead did that. And we give that advice to a ton of, and, and our pro ambassadors, they're like, oh yeah, no, no, no. You've got to have balance. So when pros tell you, I play better by having balance and doing right. things, 
that's important too. So a lot of times burnout is when that balance isn't quite there. So those would be some things I'd probably highlight. Yeah. I mean, I uh, heard a term identity foreclosure and it's oh, uh, I like what we're talking about like oh, uh, a lot of danger in that, huh? Yeah. That's a, I love that. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would also say that, you know, challenging yourself, like you were talking about um, and, and just that's a habit to build. Right. Um, and so like showing up at training and, you know, whatever you're doing and, and challenging yourself is, is a good, is a great habit to develop over time. Um, yeah. So, um, what do you think? Should we, uh, should we, uh, keep going or, or do a part two at some point? I think we'll probably do a part two. Yeah. yeah I, I could, I could honestly, I mean, I'd love to keep talking for hours, but, um, yeah, yeah definitely. I, I would be a hundred percent open to a part two and, and I appreciate awesome. you, uh, yeah. Giving me this platform, a chance to talk, uh, talk yep. about some things I, I, I really love to do. And hopefully yep. someone out there is listening and maybe some things can benefit them too. Yeah. Well, this is so important. It's, um, it's such a big part of, of performance, but also just enjoying what you're doing, you know? Yeah. So um, I, I really appreciate it. Um, it's been great. Um, hold on one sec. Thank you for listening to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. If you're enjoying the podcast and find it valuable, please consider visiting buymeacoffee.com matchplay. These small donations collectively help offset costs and other expenses associated with production of the podcast so I can continue to offer this service for free. Please take an extra minute to rate and review the podcast where you listen. This is a huge help. Share the podcast with whomever you think would be interested and will help in their process. Check us out on matchplayrecruit.com for our social media links. See you on the trail.